Well, good morning, Faith family. Uh, it's good to uh, not see all of you, um, very select few of you. And, and this morning, I, I want to share with you that you serve a forgiving God who always keeps his word. We're, we're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 this morning, starting in verse 10. 2 Chronicles 7, starting in verse 10, and we'll go through verse 20. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their homes, joyful and glad of heart for the prosperity that the Lord had granted to David and to Solomon and to Israel, his people. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man to rule Israel. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from the, my land that I have given you. And this house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. Please pray with me. Well, Father, we come before you today. We, we are grateful and thankful that we have this opportunity. We have an opportunity to read your word, to hear your word, and I pray that your spirit would be with us, that you would continue to encourage us and empower us for obedience. Help us to glorify you in, in the mundane and in the unknown. And I ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So, so good morning again. I, I, I want to convey uh, that the main thing I want to convey to you is that you serve a forgiving God who always keeps his word. And first, I want you to imagine something maybe a little strange. I want you to imagine that, that you serve as a priest during King Solomon's reign. Okay, so let's say you faithfully follow the Levitical law. You are a faithful priest in the house of God. When Israelites bring you an animal sacrifice, as the law states, you remind them to place their hand on the head of the animal. Your fellow Israelite confesses sin, petitions for mercy, he slaughters his sacrifice at the neck while you, while you hold a bowl underneath, catching the blood spilling out. You, you fling it on the altar to make atonement. Daily, you see this exchange of guilty with, with the innocent and, and by way of blood and death. You, your friend, your Israelite brother, they, they have to skin and cut up the offering. And, and just like a thousand or so times before, 
you've done. You, you take those pieces of the offering, you place them in the, on the altar, and then you burn them completely. After each offering, death's lingering shadow weighs heavier and heavier in your mind, your heart, and your soul. But for today, this one Israelite's sins have been covered. His sacrifice has been accepted by the Lord. God's love endures forever. While living under the rule and reign of King Solomon, you recognize that the time you're living in is unprecedented. Over 150,000 people have worked to build this new temple. It's twice the size of the tabernacle you're used to, and it's even bigger with its surrounding chambers and outlying courts. That The temple itself could fit into our new faith family building, but with all the chambers, with all the courts, really Solomon's temple would have fit more comfortably like in a football-size field. At the temple's dedication, you join with hundreds of priests singing, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And during this, you see a massive, powerful cloud overflow from the temple. You recognize that this is like what happened to Moses, and it's happening to you. King Solomon says what everyone is thinking. He says this, he says, will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, Heaven and highest heaven cannot contain God, how much less this house I have built. King Solomon closes his prayer of dedication and and seven petitions with this. He says, Almighty God, let your priests be clothed with salvation. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. You open your eyes to another supernatural event. Just like Moses, Aaron, and the priests of the tabernacle watched fire fall from heaven, and consume the burnt offering, you now see fire fall like lightning on the altar. And you know what this means. You know it means that God has accepted this temple. God has accepted the priestly ministry that you are about to enter into. It's almost too good to be true. You and hundreds of your fellow priests fall down in worship saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Even, even as a priest, you're stunned by this. It's, it's hard to describe the feeling. Maybe it would be like us waking up tomorrow morning, Monday morning, uh, and, and we see this confirmed headline. It says, all, all world leaders unite, and they've changed their minds. All country borders are now open to share the gospel of Christ. Wouldn't that be incredible, right? Or, or, or maybe a more imminently exciting headline for us would be, attention, COVID is gone. You, you, can, you can come out now, right? You, we would be in shock, right? The, the praise and thanks to God would just overflow from us. We wouldn't even think about it. So with joy and hope as a priest, you stand your post ministering as priest while the king and the entire nation of Israel come together far and wide to offer over 100,000 sheep and oxen as a sacrifice. This is the dedication of the altar for seven days, followed by the celebrating uh, celebration of the seven-day Feast of Booths in the seventh month of the year. Instead of sacrificing in booths and tents in the searing hot desert, you are living in the height of prosperity and blessing in God's promised land. You're watching your God reward King Solomon's obedience. You see that his obedience is Israel's obedience. God is dwelling with you. What, what greater time to be a priest in the house of God. As an Israelite, 
you also knew with certainty that you served a forgiving God who always kept his word. So now here we are in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 10, and you see how the people were joyful and glad of heart because of the temple, right? For followers of Christ, our, our symbol of God keeping his word to us is, is the cross. For the Israelites, it, it was the temple. One author put it this way, the temple becomes the chief symbol of the promises God made to David, Solomon's father. Rather than the temple replacing the monarchy, regular temple worship draws attention to the very promises which brought both temple and monarchy into being. There is true unity and peace in the promised land. And in this phrase, they were joyful and glad, it refers to promises that were given way before Solomon and way before King David were even born. In God's law, there were promises of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. In God's law, when the people saw the abundant prosperity that God had given to them, they were to serve with joyfulness and gladness of heart. It's fascinating. Even in Deuteronomy, it says there was actually a clear punishment for not serving God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. It says, quote, you shall serve your enemies because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. But in, in 2 Chronicles, in this verse, we see the reverse of this, right? We see blessing instead of curse. God's people serve him with joy. They rightly recognize the prosperity that God and God alone had given to them. They, they experienced no curse at this time and, and only blessing. And these curses and blessings found in God's law are reiterated all over 2 Chronicles in, in the entirety of the book and in our passage this morning. In Solomon's prayer of, of dedication, uh, just a, a chapter before, his seven requests to God are, are filled just with citations from God's law. Uh, we, we could say with, with certainty God or Solomon is merely praying the Bible back to God. An example of this, Leviticus 19, in the law, it says, You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. So then, we, we, we can see this clearly with one of Solomon's requests to God at the dedication of the temple. He says this, When a foreigner, he's praying to God, God, when a foreigner comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and prays toward this house, hear from heaven. Hear him from heaven. Like, what, why would God not answer that request? He's just praying back the Bible. Uh, God was the one who told you, Solomon, to accept the sojourner in the first place. So, of course, God's going to honor that prayer. Solomon's prayer merely reiterates the law of God. And, and God responds to what God commands. It's like a parent hearing from their kid, like, hey, mom, this... This is now is the appointed time that I am to go to bed. Can I, can I please go to bed? Like, like uh, aside from being just blown away by that, you know, the parent like, yes, of course, absolutely. You have my full blessing to go back to bed. And in fact, you keep this up and you're going to get all of your siblings, you know, birthrights or, or whatever, right? So, so it, it's, it's clear God responds to what God commands. Think of Elijah praying to stop the rain in the land. I had a, a professor point that out to me years and years ago. I think this is so helpful. Elijah prays 
the land to not receive any rain. Israel's leaders were corrupt. The people were worshiping false gods. So Elijah knew God's covenantal curses for disobedience, and it included drought. So what does Elijah do? Hey, God, they're disobeying, so let's not have any rain anymore. And there was no rain. And then, and then later what happens? Elijah prays again, God, please, please hear our prayer. We humbly repent. We, we confess to you, right? There was a faithful remnant, and he prayed, and then the rain came back to the land. These have all, everything to do with God's covenant blessings and, and curses. Elijah knew his Bible. Solomon knew his Bible. Consider as well that the last verse that we read in our text, what God says in 2 Chronicles 7, 20, if Israel defies God, he will make them a proverb and a byword among the nations. It's going to be absolutely clear that if Israel defies God, it's not because God abandoned them. No, it's, it's because God was punishing them. And the nations were going to react and go, man, man, what did you do to Yahweh? The nations will see them as a byword. And, and this, this phrase, byword, proverb, this is from the law of God. It's from Deuteronomy, where he clearly states that continued rebellion and defiance means Israel, quote, shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among the nations. So again, these, these curses and blessings from God's law, they are reiterated all over Second Chronicles and in our passage this morning. And, and the point of this is to show you that God always keeps his word. If he has spoken, it will come to pass. Consider as well, Solomon praying God's law, asking for his covenant blessing. And one of Solomon's prayers, he asks God this. He says, if there's a famine in the land or a plague or locusts, whatever plea is made by your people, then hear from heaven and forgive. And God responds to what he commands. In 2 Chronicles 7.13, what do we read? We read this. When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among Israel. If Israel and my people humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Okay, now, now this, this is interesting to me, right? Think, think about the land for, for a moment. Why, why, why would God even bring up something about uh, the land, and what does healing the land actually mean? I think the Geneva Study Bible puts it simply and helpfully. He says, heal the land means a reverse of drought, pestilence, and locusts. When God says he will heal the land, he's saying, if my people repent, I will cause the pestilence to cease and destroy the beasts that hurt the earth's fruit and send rain in due season. And sadly, we know the, the outcome after Solomon's reign, right? The, the people just, they, they don't obey. They continue in disobedience. They continue in rebellion. And it's so severe but on top of a drought that, that Elijah brought about, right, uh, further disaster, Israel experiences another covenantal curse, and that's found in the law. And it's, what is it? It's exile, right? This is a dramatic removal from the land. So, so, so bear with me. This has to do with God healing the land. In Leviticus, God's law makes provision for his people even in exile because he knows it's going to happen. He's giving this law to Moses, and Moses is like, man, these people are going to do some really terrible stuff. He's already seen them do some bad stuff. It's going to happen again. In Leviticus, it says, but if they confess their iniquity and their treachery 
that they committed against me, so that I brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Abraham. And he closes with this. God says this, and I will remember the land. God remembers his people in exile, and he remembers the land that they're exiled from. God will remember the land. Why? Well, God's, God's law commanded a Sabbath. Again, everything that we're seeing in Second Chronicles unfolding was either you obeyed the law of God or you did not. God's law commanded a Sabbath for the promised land. Israel could farm for six years. In the seventh year, there is to be a, a sabbatical, a rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord, just as God rested on the seventh day. The word Sabbath simply means rest. The, the expectations here, it, it was that the Jews were to let their grounds be idle, release debtors, and let the poor gather from the fields. It was to remind the nation that all it possessed belonged to God. So, so let's take a, a step back to cover what, like think about what we've already covered, right? The, the point is still that God always keeps his word. Okay, so before Solomon, God's law states that in exile, he will remember the land. And God's law says that the land, while the people are exiled, the land will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate. Seems strange. Here now in the time of Solomon, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, God promises to heal the land if and when his people turn from evil. And then, and then way later, after Solomon, at the end of Chronicles, we see how God kept his word, and he does what he says in the, in the law. God remembered the land. Just, just not in the way an Israelite would have hoped for, living in exile. Right Near the, the very end of 2 Chronicles 36, when Israel is still exiled to Babylon, it's amazing. The chronicler remarks that God let Israel remain in exile, quote, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath. God told Moses that he would remember the land. God told Solomon that he would heal the land if his people changed. And then it only took an entire nation going into exile for the land to be remembered and healed. And chances are that the faithful few in, in Israel were, were humbly praying to God to spare them, to spare the nation, right? They were praying on behalf of the nation. They were praying God's law. God, remember your land. This, is, this would have looked not how they would have wanted it to. God remembers the land, but he remembers it while the nation is in exile. Israel would be forgiven and the land would be healed, but only through the judgment of exile. So, so we don't have the time to, to discuss all the, all the theological implications of, of creation care, right? Um, it, I, I don't think that it would be a good idea to like, all right, in seven years from now, I need to like give my coronavirus victory garden the Sabbath rest. You know, like that, that, that's not the point of what's happening. But, but what we do have time to see is this. God's ability to fulfill his word is not reliant on human will or work. God brought healing to the land by reversing the curse of drought in Elijah's time, after he brought the drought in the first place. And later, he brought healing to the land when Israel was exiled. 
They refused to give the land its Sabbaths, so God did. God brought about obedience. He fulfills what he commands, whether, whether his image bearers obey or not. The Bible says it like this, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. God always keeps his word. And we do not only serve a God who always keeps his word, but we serve a God who forgives, who forgives even our unfaithfulness. So if you're, if you're watching this, if you're not a Christian, then I want you to know that this truth carries over to today. And this is the truth. God has never broken a single promise. He keeps his word. He will bring about obedience. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There will be a universal obedience to Christ. God's people will obey him and God's enemies will obey him. But universal obedience does not mean universal salvation. If you are against God, then, then the, the question you must answer is, it's hard, but it's simple. And, and the question is, is when, when will you bow the knee? To the Christian, there, there are two points of caution here for us as, as we think about this text in Second Chronicles. First, when God said to Solomon and the nation of Israel, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, then I will forgive and heal the land There's a a careful word of warning for us. Be careful to not uh, uh, banister God's word here. What do I mean when I say that? Well, Charles Bannister, uh, who used to be some great English actor, I have no idea who who it was, but uh, he had an interesting story. He he was about to drink a glass of brandy, and his physician was there, and he was like, hey, Charles, don't drink that filthy stuff. Brandy is the worst enemy you have. And, And Charles responded, he says, I know that. But you know, we are commanded by Scripture to love our enemies, right? Like some, some theologians and pastors uproot this passage from the promised land, and then they just plop it into whatever nation they're in. America, it could be wherever, it doesn't matter. They, they banister 2 Chronicles 7 into a stupor of blind nationalism. So, so be careful, move away from this kind of attitude. Something greater than the promise that is here in 2 Chronicles Something greater than this is here for you. We are exiles and foreigners in this land, whether we do business in the States or missions in Mexico. We we have a greater home that we are heading toward. And and also as a kind of a side note, be be careful that if if you do really think like, no, this text really applies to my nation, this really applies to America, uh, be careful with that because when you when you pray for healing in the land. Remember from Chronicles that it wasn't beyond the scope of God to use exile, physical exile, to then bring healing in the land, right? Like, I don't, I don't want to go to Canada, right? So um, uh, anyway, so, so a, second, like a second point of caution in this is, is at the same time, be careful to never belittle the people of God. If, you, if your theological spidey senses go off, and you confront a believer like, hey, I, I heard you faithfully praying, but you were praying 2 Chronicles 7. And, and I, just, I just want you to know, like, that's, man, that's so wrong. How, like, how dare you? We, we don't live under that old covenant anymore. What's your problem? Like, be careful to not belittle. And, and the question you should be asking yourself is this, is, is well, are, are you praying? <laughs> 
At least this person's praying to God Almighty, who is quick to hear, who understands us when we don't understand ourselves. St. Augustine, uh, he, he had a helpful corrective to this kind of arrogance. Uh, a fellow Christian's impulse toward loving God or toward loving others, it just should never be despised. It should always be welcomed. We instruct, we encourage, but we do not cast down or belittle. And, and the impulse to pray, 2 Chronicles 7, it, it's not always a, a bad one. We're, we're told to pray for our leaders with sincerity of heart, right? We're, we're told to confess sins. But, but thanks be to God, we, we just no longer do this in light of living in the promised land. We, we no longer do this in light of the temple and its sacrifices. We no longer do this in light of God's covenant curses and blessings. In verse 14, God says, if Israel repents truly, God will forgive. Verse 15 says, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. This, this promise involved God's people who were what we see in the Old Testament, uncircumcised in heart, meaning they did not have changed hearts like the Christian. So the question is, is how, how did unconverted people humble themselves, pray, seek God's face, and turn from their wicked ways in order to find forgiveness? Well, well the answer was now right in front of their eyes, right? It's the, it's the temple. It was the most practical way they could come to God and be reunited with God. It was the clearest way to each and every Israelite of how they could be forgiven by a holy God who must punish sin. That's why there's hundreds of priests around who are hopefully doing it for the right reason, right? Through costly sacrifice, God gave them a clear path toward humble repentance. But by traveling to the temple, as every single Israelite did, we see this in our text from Labahamoth to the brook of Egypt, Solomon brought everybody together, and they were all reminded, all of Israel was reminded afresh of how to be covered by God. They, they knew back then that they served a God who was a forgiving God and a God who always kept his word. And you, Christian, you serve a forgiving God who always keeps his word. You are not uncircumcised of heart like the Israelites. You have been forgiven in a way that Israelites really only could have dreamt of. Think, think of how Second Chronicles played out for Israel. You, you had to be obedient as an individual and then as a collective, right? It, it was this both and. Israel could humble themselves and offer sacrifices in, in the temple, and, and they did. God would forgive their sin. God would bring healing to the land. But disobedience required Israel to sacrifice over and over and over again. And we don't want to live in those promises because we have far greater promises now. Just think of how God's word here to, to Solomon panned out. The, the nation did not see God's forgiveness. The nation was, was exiled, right? Now the faithful remnant sought forgiveness. The land received rest. The land was healed. But, but coming out of exile at the very end of Chronicles, there, there was no temple. The kingdom was diminished. Israel needed something greater than the temple and someone greater than Solomon. They, they needed God with them in a, in a new way. God in the flesh, Emmanuel, who was God with us. And when Emmanuel was with them, when Jesus was with them, he kept the law that Israel didn't keep. All the covenantal curses reiterated to us, just the, the small fraction of them that we, we read about in Second Chronicles, all the punishments for disobedience that, that were aimed directly at Israel, 
directly at us for our disobedience. They were placed on the one who is greater than the temple, who is greater than Solomon. Paul said this to the church in Galatia. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ on the cross became a horror and a byword among the people. In Christ, Jesus took on all curses for you. So now, what's left? Old Testament, you had blessings and you had curses. And you have someone taking on all curses for you. All that remains are blessings for the people of God. And Christians all over the world, whether Jew or Gentile, young or old, black or white, they all have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Paul continues on, he says, Christ became a curse so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's what we've been saying all along, right? God keeps his word. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. All along, God has kept his word to Abraham, to Moses, to David, and now to you, to me. He again dwells with his people. We are now his temple. The temple is no longer geographically bound. It is boundless and it is global. When we consider 2 Chronicles, we see a God who is always given of himself, who is always given more of himself than he is commanded of us. I'll I'll say that again. God has always given more of himself than he is commanded of us. Year after year, God graciously accepted animal sacrifices in the temple in place of of wicked, treacherous, rebellious people, right? But then one time, once for all, God's final sacrifice took away sin and its power. God incarnate, our great treasure, lived with no guilt, with no shame, with no sin. Instead of taking over Israel as rightful king, he, he took over the weight of the world, our sin, our guilt, Our shame when we are in Christ. He humbled himself to the point of death and prayed on behalf of his enemies, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There's a hymn that goes, Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death, my only Savior before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness. So if you're watching this and you're not a Christian, there's good news for you here this morning. And that good news is that our God is a God who forgives. And I have a question for you. Do you know any of God's people personally? Do you know any of God's people personally? Do you notice how strange and unimpressive we all are? Have you ever considered that it's because we're all still recovering from being former enemies of God. We're, we're trying to get past that. So, some of us have more recently switched sides than others. And, it, and it's not just because we sat down and, and thought really hard about it and, okay, pros and cons. And, but, but it's because God is in the business of turning enemies into friends. That's what he's trying to do all along with, with King Solomon and the temple. He is trying to be a friend to sinners. And he goes the extra mile. He keeps going. He gives us his son. He is a friend to sinners. His kindness is what led us to turn around, to trust in him rather than ourselves. So God will forgive you. 
He will forgive you whatever happened, happened to you last year, whatever you did last year. He will forgive you what, for whatever happened last night. And for the Christian, for the Christian, God's forgiveness continually humbles us. As Christians, we are continually humbled by the forgiveness that we've received in Christ. As former enemies of God, we, we would have joined the crowds, right? Believe it or not, we would have yelled for Christ to be crucified. Our, our pride and our arrogance tells us so. We wanted nothing to do with holiness. As enemies of God, it was our sin that drove the nails into the hands of Christ. As enemies of God, it was our sin that, that held down the head of the sacrificial lamb on the altar. God's own beloved son. So God has always given us more of himself than he has asked of us. And so when Jesus says, I lay my life down of my own accord, he does it to keep God's word and to forgive us. He willingly placed his own head on the altar for you. He spilled his blood for you. And his blood speaks a better word to us than a temple sacrifice ever possibly could. I have forgiven you. I've taken away God's curse and wrath. You've believed in me, and you now have life everlasting. No trial, no hardship, no disease, no death can separate you from my love for you. You, you were once my enemy, but, but now all I know you by is friend. This is our great God. We serve a forgiving God who always keeps his word. Please pray with me. Well, Father, each, each time we read of, of how Israel would offer sacrifices in the temple to, to be forgiven, to be healed, we were reminded of, of the total forgiveness we have in Christ. Theirs was temporary, ours is forever. God, thank you for bringing us near by the blood of your Son. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments. God, we praise you that your son took all cursing for us, and we are only blessed as your people. Jesus, thank you for giving us a, a greater prayer to change a nation, a greater prayer to change the world, a greater prayer to change our fickle souls. We, we now pray your trustworthy word back to you. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.